Welcome again to another of the RMC lecture series talks. I want to let you know that next Thursday, March 26th, Susan Campbell, who is an adjunct researcher with the museum, will be talking on wintering hummingbirds in North Carolina. Now, for those of you who aren't um, directly affiliated with the museum, if you would like to receive emails about upcoming talks, I have a sign-up sheet up here. And before you leave, if you would just go ahead and sign up. Um, and Jamie will introduce today's speaker. Art Bogan will be speaking today. He's the research curator of aquatic invertebrates. He's been with the museum for a little over 12 years. His uh, main focus is uh, freshwater mussels. Um, ranging from North Carolina to the southeastern United States to worldwide. Many of you are aware of freshwater mussels. They've been referred to as pet rocks, rocks with snot, <laughs> ashtrays. I was accused when I worked in Philadelphia person who worked on a bunch of little tiny snails, she goes, what the hell do we need all these cabinets these things for? They're only ashtrays. <laughs> so hopefully today I can convince you that they're a lot more exciting, a lot more challenging. And uh, they're probably one of the world's most endangered groups of, of animals. First thing to keep in mind is how do these things reproduce? If they're pet rocks and they don't move? Well, think about wet sex. First of all, the term freshwater bivalves is not really informative. We have 19 different families that have made forays into freshwater. We're going to focus on six of those today. And the ones in North America, we have about 343 species, depending on the day, who's counting, and about 59 genera. The Dreisenids or zebra mussels are introduced. Carbiculids or the Asian clam are introduced. About four of the spheriids are introduced. And these are the two families in North America we'll focus on. They're native species. Some parts of the, <coughs> some parts of the world, these are actually eaten. There's four species here. Here's the corbicula, mud snails, and they taste like mud. And uh, this is a local market in Shanghai. And when I had my friend ask her for the shells, she looked at me, looked at, looked at my friend and goes, you can't eat the shells. It's <laughs> <laughs> just, no, 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 no. But anyway, we'll treat a few of the more common families, the spheriids, the fingernail clams. They get up to about a centimeter in diameter. The introduced. Asian clam, very common in most of our rivers today. And it sets it apart from all the others by having serrated lateral, lateral teeth. Kind of looks like you used the pinking shears on it. Oddly enough, from Lake Poso in Indonesia, on the island of Sulawesi, we have a cemented carbiculid. So the, keep in mind, we'll come back to, to freshwater oysters and as we go along. The zebra mussel, quagga mussel, and our native dark false mussel. We'll come back to the problems. Bissell threads are produced by a gland in the base of the foot. And in the case of zebra mussels, they have multiple uh, strands to anchor themselves to the hard substrate. And at the height of the infestation, they reached about 700, 750,000 animals per square meter in western Lake Erie. So they're a real, real problem for anybody using water directly out of the lake. Classification of these animals has been a uh, exciting thing that depends on who you're talking to, what your preference is. Uh, the number of families ranges from four to nine. Right now, there are probably six but that's looking like it may be reduced.
today we're looking at probably three superfamilies using a, a parasitic larval stage of the clochidium, and then these three families apparently use this Martian type larvae. We'll show pictures of these. About 800 species worldwide, give or take, depending on what you do with areas like Central America, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, where these things have not been well studied. They're unique. Unionoids are unique in the class bivalve and having an obligate parasitic larval stage. The males and females are typically separate. Each time I come up with what should be a hard and true fact, somebody goes, ah, wrong. There's, <laughs> there's at least two examples. So this generally holds through for these six families. Uh, either on the gills or fins of fish, the lycidium attaches to the sides of the fish. The, uh, the glochidia are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of half a millimeter or less in diameter. The developing embryos are held in the some part or portion of the gills. Freshwater mussels have two pair of gills <coughs> and they're used like fish, fish gills. I'll get the hang of this yet. They can be either the whole outer gill, <coughs> the whole inner gill, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, or a portion of the outer gill. And we have one here, the western, the eastern fan shell, which has this pink coiled structure that comes out of the, uh, the center of the gill. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember what a Pac-Man was. This is not. It's a glochidial larvae of the dwarf wedge mussel. They come in a variety of shapes, triangular, round, oval, uh, some with large ventral spikes to hold on to the gill tissue, where some are just the ones that typically attach to the gills have no ventral hook. These are all used as uh, characters. This one is an axe head shape with a variety of, of, of teeth recurved to make sure that once it attaches, it's, it's going to stay there. They attach to the gills or fins. You see them here on gill filaments. These are two conglutinates. These are released out into the, into the water column and uh, they're held by a, a larval thread to the, the conglutinate mass. Here it is, they insist they're on anywhere from two weeks to several months on the gills. Typically in Unionidae, they do not grow and uh, after a certain length of time, they, they start off not having, they have a single adductor muscle and they do not have a foot, intestinal system, or gills. All this starts developing while they're on the gills of the fish. We're not sure what it takes to cause the metamorphosis or what, what the signal is that they go, okay, it's time to get off. But if they fall on uh, suitable substrate, begin growing, they'll live anywhere from 10 to 200 years. Extremely long-lived individuals. So the first question was, how do these things reproduce? All right, the female uh, is able to uh, take in sperm out of the water column, gravid, clochidia develop. How do you get from this pet rock onto the gills of a fish? Here's a darter. Here's another darter, except this is the, an extension of the mantle, the part of the animal that lays down the shell, the incurrent and excurrent apertures. Eye spot, lateral line, dorsal fin, caudal fin, they wave in the current, looking exactly like a, a, a fish. A, a piscivore of one sort or another comes in, takes a bite, or tries to take a bite, and the female releases a cloud of eggs, and hopefully some of them end up sticking. Another example, this is the same, same animal, different ecology. This one's rather bizarre. It lives in the uh, upper Tennessee system. The only known photograph of metal flap of this animal. And there's mimicry. Whether it's a caterpillar, one looks like a uh, uh, 
crayfish. They also produce conglutinates. As I mentioned before, these, if you look very closely, are full of uh, glochidia, mimicking black fly pupae. Uh, different types of worms, flatworms, larval fish with uh, lateral myomeres, segments, eye spots, and they're full of, full of glochidia, the weak spots of the eye, and they have a, a sticky tail. They attach to a rock, wave in the, in the uh, current, and somebody goes, a fish comes by and says, oh my, let's have, have lunch. Well, they get a mouthful of glochidia in the meantime. Here's an example of a uh, uh, Carolina heel splitter, a very, very transparent uh, conglutinate. These are all active, ready to, to snap shut uh, glochidia. Probably the most bizarre discovered 10, 15 years ago. Super conglutinate. This is a gelatinous tube, and all of the glochidia are put into this distal portion. The, the tube may be up to two meters long. Bass comes by. There's video of it that uh, they, they're aware when they get a mouthful of snapping glochidia. They don't like it and they go, do everything they can to spit them out. Where do they live? In, uh, typically in free-flowing, clean, highly oxygenated waters, adjacent to the flow, adjacent to weed beds, out into, uh, into riffles. In some cases, they actually form beds, densities of 200, 300 animals per square meter. The pearl mussel in Finland reaches densities of 700 animals per square meter. You don't see any substrate. Uh, these sorts of populations today are becoming very rare. Some of them live nestled down behind rocks. Some are living in softer sediments. It's, uh, if it's in fresh water, there's probably an animal, a freshwater mussel that lives there. So a quick overview of family Unionidae. It uses glochidia, and it's, it's widespread. We'll come back to, first question comes up is, what happened to South America and Australia? They have a completely different fauna. Unionids are uh, subboreal, down to basically almost to South America. Throughout Europe, the understanding of distributions in northern Siberia is very sketchy, <coughs> and all the way to uh, South Africa and to northwest Madagascar. They're smooth, shiny. Some of them lack any structure on the, the hinge plate. These are often found in soft sediments. One of the things that you'll notice as we go through here, you'll see the same shell shapes over and over again. This is one of the problems of classification of the modern material, and it really causes issues when you start to look at what uh, happens in the fossil record. How do you identify a species? How far back in the fossil record does a genus uh, occur? This one happens to be Solonia out of India, and you'll see there's three species all put in Solonia, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Ridges, sharp, sharp ridges, different, different shell shapes. That is actual shininess of the shell. That's the way I picked it out of a uh, pile of dead shells in, along Lake Taihu. Different adaptations to different substrates. This wing provides stability in a, in a softer sand substrate. At least in North America, some of the species have sexual dimorphism. This is the snuff box. This one's a male. The one with the swollen posterior is a female. They use this for uh, a gelatinous, not a gelatinous, but a, a spongy pad that is multicolored depending on the species. Some have pustules, bumps, and I showed you one that had no teeth, the lateral teeth, the pseudocardinal teeth, and the two muscle scars. This one looks like it probably belonged with that last one. Lots of pustules. Comes out of the uh, Yangtze River in China. There'll be a quiz at the end. Uh, 
the maple leaf, two big rows of pustules, other, other sculpture. Again, variations, ridges across the shell for stability in the substrate. And we have four species with spines in the world today. Two occur here in North Carolina, one occurs in the Altamaha River in Georgia. And the suggested function is stability for juveniles in a shifting sand environment. Another one out of, of China, same shell shape as one occurring here in the southeastern United States. Crevice dwelling, this is a Model Nye out of, out of Thailand. The anterior end ends up hooked in, a in, in, in between a rock crevice dwelling. You'll see the same shape uh, later on. Market affairs, the pearl mussels, there's a lot of contention on how many genera. The Russians have been naming lots of new species from, from Northeast Asia. <coughs> it's a worldwide distribution, kind of, kind of funky. This one is actually a misidentification. The whole family is characterized by these lateral mantle attachment scars. They're not muscles, but uh, none of the Unianas or other families seem to have those scars. We have two species that have some degree of sculpture, but usually they are a dull brown to black shell. Uh, we have one species in the northeastern United States Pennsylvania north to Nova Scotia, one on the west coast, and then we have the spectacle case occurring in the, in the Ohio River Basin. Hyreids, they also have a glochidium, but apparently, based on DNA, are not closely related to the last two families. And you can see they're, they fill in the gap that was left by the Unionids. Uh, interestingly, there are none recognized in South Africa, Madagascar. They do not, as far as we can tell, cross Wallace's line into Southeast Asia. That looks kind of like the market of ferret we just saw. Um, I mentioned before that long, slender razor clam with basically no, no teeth. Here it is again, Solonia. This one's out of Australia. Separate family, the animal living inside is completely different. The South Americans take some of the sculpture, radial umbilical sculpture to the extreme. Triplodon, again with a wing for more stability in the substrate. Another one. All right, we get now to, <coughs> excuse me, the, the Martian larvae. South America, Central America. It comes up as far as some of the, the western tributaries to uh, the Pacific in west central Mexico. This is again on the size of, of the uh, quarter of a millimeter or less. A, a large capsule with a series of four five pairs of chitinous ventral hooks that attaches to the side of the body, puts a tube down into the body, sucks off body fluids, and on the end of that tube, a small bivalve develops, forms an abscission layer behind the bivalve, it drops off and uh, becomes a bivalve. What that tube does to the fish, we don't know. There we go again, Solonia from uh, South America. So we have three families and this is supported genetically, morphologically, uh, anatomically. Not the otherwise the shells basically would seem to fit together. Lila from Argentina, monochondlia. And another one of those dull brown black rectangles. Iridinids, for many years referred to as the family mutility, restricted to Africa and it has a, a slightly different uh, lycidial <coughs> two-part development for a, a lycidial larvae. Restricted to Africa south of the Sahara except 
going clear down into the delta on the Nile. Here it's a, we only know about two or three species, typically round, has three or four ventral pair, pair of ventral hooks. And here it has an extremely long filament, tail on this thing, apparently wraps in vegetation, waits for a fish to swim by, and it's home. Um, earlier I mentioned when I showed pictures as the incurrent and excurrent apertures. These are actual siphons. Iridinids, hyreids, and mycetopodids all have fused siphons. This one, the incurrent siphon, may or may not be completely fused. Unionids have apertures. There's no fusion of the mantle at this point. It's just held together by muscular force. I showed you typical dentition earlier. One of the African species has taxoid teeth reminiscent of a lot of your marine, some of your marine bivalves like arcs. One out of the Congo that we have no clue what this tube is for. Um, Dan Graff just picked up a few specimens recently and is just starting to work on, on the anatomy of this animal. The same shape we're seeing consistently, mutella, and uh, looks like a mucket from, uh, from the upper Ohio, the upper Tennessee. Freshwater oysters become a problem. Etheria elliptica is uh, from Africa. Acostia from the Rio Magdalena in Colombia, Bartlettia from the Amazon, and Pseudomalaria from the Mysore district in southern, southeast India. Made a great story. A, a famous malacologist published a great paper on Gondwana distribution of, uh, of the theriads and uh, becoming cemented. That's a wonderful story, and that's exactly what it is. This one has a larval stage like the rest of these from South, Mycetopodids from South America. This apparently has a uh, glochidial larval stage based on DNA. It falls out with the rest of the Unionids. So a nice picture, nice story goes down the tube. Ethereity, as, as we recognize it today, restricted to Sub-Saharan Africa and only up to the, the cataracts on the Nile and one or two specimens from northwest Madagascar. Comes in smooth, it forms in some places like in the Congo, it'll form actual reefs in the rivers. Received wisdom is there's one species of Etheria, the smooth one, the spined one, and this one. There's been no work done on anatomy or DNA of this so far. <coughs> Pseudomalaria out of India, it has a single adductor muscle here in the, uh, in the adult. The uh, anterior one is lost. <coughs> so it becomes a, 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 a looking like a true oyster with a single adductor muscle. Here's the other, <coughs> other species that I was talking about, the becoming a crevice dweller in this case almost losing or, or completely losing that anterior adductor muscle. Now I mentioned earlier that we had problems with extinction. Well, you look at the literature, the professional journals, <coughs> and you see this term misused. So bear with me for a minute. Extirpation is when you lose a population or when you have a few animals living in captivity. But when in freshwater mussels, they become functionally extinct when you have a small population left, they're old senescent adults, there's no reproduction going on, the host fish is gone, when the last one winks out, like the last passenger pigeon in the St. Louis Zoo, then it's extinct. Populations do not go extinct, they're extirpated, species go extinct. In freshwater mussels, it wasn't until 1970 we realized that, hey folks, we've been losing mussels out here since 1900 we haven't been seeing. 
And it started off with about 11 species, and we're up to somewhere around 35 species. How did we get there? Modification of habitats. Dams, this is a Norris Dam on the, on the Clinch River, built about 1936. What happened to the fauna? There were about 70 species there prior to dam building. Above deep water, lack of oxygen, and sedimentation over the tops of the beds. Below, they're left high and dry as raccoon food. Sedimentation of all sorts. As early as 1842, Charles Lyell, the famous geologist, noted in the Aldamaha, you could tell which streams were coming off of European settlements, which were coming off Native American. The ones coming off the Native American were still up but running clear. So we were already making a mess in our nest by 1842 or earlier. Pollution, that's an interesting term. It uh, covers a whole variety of, of sins. Point source is often a, a major problem. Sewage treatment plants with nitrogenous waste, chlorine, chlorine breakdown <coughs> products. Come on. The coal industry. Some of you have been, are from out uh, Western PA, Kentucky, West Virginia. Slurry ponds of various sorts have been in the news, runoff from uh, coal fines are causing problems of just washing over and smothering beds of, of mussels. But there's an added, added problem, acid mine drainage. When I first started working in Western Pennsylvania, a friend said, hey, I'll take you out and show you some red streams. We can just check those off because they have a pH of about three, freshwater mussel shells or calcium carbonate. It's like putting a uh, Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water. You have a few midge species left living in here. And he said, well, now we'll go look at a white stream. I figured Tom had had an extra beer at lunch. Slightly different pH. Aluminum hydroxide precipitates out. When some of these streams come together, you get really pretty water, but almost no diversity left. This is a cattle ranch in, in Kansas. Being politically correct, I wouldn't mention this being a hog farm in North Carolina. The problems are the same. Nitrogenous waste washing off of here or off the, the fields where, where the waste is spread or the lagoons where, for uh, methane production. This could be carry. Impervious surfaces. As you put in more roads, more Walmarts, large parking lots, it changes the, the daily rhythm of flow. You end up having lots of flash events, higher scour, movement of sand. To say nothing of the excess fertilizer, pesticides and everything else that's being washed into the, uh, into the rivers. Sand dipping, gravel mining, removes a substrate. This is over uh, just west of Charlotte. Couldn't figure out, we were downstream, we couldn't figure out why the, the creek bed had such a, a weird shape. Six inches here and 15 feet here. Kind of tough on, on mussels. The uh, engineers have great fun in redirecting, rechannelizing rivers, making it flow better. There used to be between eight and 10 species living in here. There are none. Now, it's great, water moves down out of our backyard into somebody else's. Invasive species. We talked earlier about the, uh, the zebra mussels. At the height, one report mentions 11,000 zebra mussels on the rear end of one Native American species. Apparently, they like the substrate, they like the water flow, but if you're depending on the bacteria and other uh, phytoplankton, zooplankton and the water to subsist on, and it passes through 11,000 animals before it gets to you, you're gonna die. And uh, if substrate isn't, isn't good for these, they can actually sever those bissel threads and move as adults. And they start reproducing it over about three millimeters long. And they may only live five to eight years, but their reproductive rate is tremendous. This has been through 
pictures, the ideas, and everything through a whole variety of, of people. The other thing I wanted to talk about today is, all right, the first question, that's, that's wonderful. We know about freshwater clams around the world. But what exactly do you do? How does it relate to the museum? How does it relate to what's going on in North Carolina? <clears throat> well, it's not a Smurf. When I first arrived, we've, I finished the co-authoring the Freshwater Mussels of Tennessee, uh, probably the second most diverse fauna, freshwater bivalve fauna in the world. Then a workbook and key, an introduction to freshwater mussels in North Carolina. It's in being revised for, for a second edition. South Carolina, well, they didn't have all the interior basin species from the Tennessee tributaries, so we added four or five species to what we had for the Atlantic Coast species of North Carolina, and a second edition of it came out. And some of them actually do come out as field guides. This is spiral-bound, laminated, and it has nice pictures of each one with a small write-up. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service in South Carolina, DNR, produced this one. Oh, um, collecting on the Nile River, collecting freshwater mussels, trying to uh, look both at, at my at iridinids and the small species are unionids adding more material to our ongoing analysis. Betsy passed around a copy of this doorstop. It came out in August of 2008. And to give you an idea of what actually goes into developing a book like this, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a, uh, It passes beyond being a labor of love and passion, and after a certain time, it just takes on a life of its own. Jim Williams, back in his younger days, working for Fish and Wildlife Service in Washington, D.C. I had hair at one time that had color. And our third author, Jeff Garner, circa 1980, is just a young, young pup. And a woman that kept the whole damn thing together and actually facilitated it being finished with Sherry. She was uh, Jim Williams' administrative assistant and had good background in Photoshop, in Excel, and especially in Word. When we sent material out, it was spell-checked three or four times, and when the comments came back, they go, there weren't any misspellings. We had Sherry to thank for it. She always had the most recent edition. Jim had three or four other editions that <laughs> was always getting confused. Jim started back in the 1970s working on the Tom Bigby waterway and suing the Corps of Engineers and being asked to not come back to his university position if he decided to play games like that. And he finally decided in the early 80s that he was going to write a book. And uh, night, fall of 1984, he and I got together, the American Society of, American Malacological Society and the American Fisheries Society decided to put together a checklist of common scientific names of mollusks. And I'd made a, a smart ass comment to my boss. So he said, you, you're it. You're gonna redo the freshwater bivalves. And I knew nothing about some of the genera in Alabama. So Jim and I started talking and one thing led to another. We visited a variety of museums from the 1980s using a variety of uh, funding sources. And the last four years of museum work was funded by the SWIG program in the state of Alabama. About 25,000 plottable records, and then we had about another 5,000 we looked at that say Alabama, Coosa River, but no, not near a town or any other things. And at that time, Dick Bryant, who had done a lot of the photography for the, the fishes of Tennessee with Wayne came on and was supported through the, through the grant. A variety of museums, both here in the United States and in, in Europe. This doorstop, as you can see, 10 pounds, 178. Well, as soon as that thing went to press, that number is out of date. Jeff diving in the Tennessee goes, oh, hey, that one species we thought that was moving in, 
the Wabash pigtail, I got two live ones. One week later, a colleague at the University of Alabama says, hey, this little creek that goes into Mississippi, I got another, another species you don't have. So we're up to 180. And uh, we found a few, always you find a few misspellings, one or two things that get left out. And a whole lot of illustrations. And through Sherry's work of cleaning up scanned lithographs from as far back as 1820, cleaning up and sizing all of the color photographs, the drawings, watercolors, it finally, finally came together. Example was the, the ring pink, the sugar spoon. I included this one because there were three species that are extinct in the genus Epioblasma that I found in 1992 in the Natural History Museum in Leiden in the Netherlands. They're the only known preserved specimens of those three species. So I was able to use the material in, in Frankfurt, Germany, they wouldn't ship it to us, and provide a whole series of basic information that we did not know previously about the uh, anatomy. In all cases where we could find the species was originally illustrated, we went back, reproduced the original lithograph, and here's a, a modern specimen. In some cases where you have the same species being described six, eight, ten times, you look at what's described, you see the range of variation. And every now and again in working, putting the book together, we realized, hey, that name, now that we have the figure along with everything else, doesn't belong. You go back and look at the type specimen, compare it to the other types. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the same. Dots. For the Tennessee book, Paul and I put those dots on by hand. So if you're thinking about putting 25,000 dots on maps and getting them accurate, I'd still be putting dots on maps. But that's for the, uh, for the washboard. The three fat bald guys. We're standing in the middle of the Sipsi River last September. Jim Williams, Jeff Garner. And uh, Jeff comes across as kind of Larry the Cable Guy, a real backwoods redneck. But don't let him fool you. He's never met a sentence he can't both shorten and improve. We were very fortunate to have E.O. Wilson write the foreword for the book. And when the, the foreword arrived, we go, all right, smart ass. Now you can, he, two Pulitzer Prizes behind him. Uh, what can you do with the foreword? Jim and I read it, except for the last sentence, a little odd. Jeff reads, he goes, well, there's a uh, verb tense that's wrong, and that last sentence is missing a uh, clause or something. It just doesn't make any sense. So we send it back to E.O. Wilson, and he goes, you're right, verb was wrong, and I don't know what the hell happened to that last sentence. <laughs> um, contemplating, whoops, contemplating freshwater, uh, freshwater bivalves. There's a, several other things that are going on. Uh, we're looking, in collaboration with Randy Hay at Kent State, we're looking at this tree is based on a series of morphological characters, anatomical characters, and about seven different genes. And come on. The, uh, one of the things I want to point out, if we talked about etherids, the, the freshwater oysters. Here is Pseudomalaria. Here's another one. And here's another one. In this analysis, there is no resolution of those three families. So as we continue to add more material, more taxa, more morphological characters, we hope to be able to resolve this even, even better. One of the things that's really weird about unionoids is that at least three of the families have double uniparental inheritance, which comes out as DUI, which is a bad choice. But in the mitochondria, the male and female both transmit DNA. 
Most all other animals, most other mollusks, only transmit the female mitochondrial DNA. And they're mirror images of each other, but there's about 30 to 50% sequence divergence between males and females. Um, this all started with work on mytillids, uh, the, the blue oysters. The other thing we're doing is uh, Randy's postdoc just started looking at, this is a order, gene order on the mitochondrion of uh, a maple leaf and this is the female, <coughs> this is the male. A and B are basically in the same place. C is moved and D has, has been inserted. The other thing is that the male has an extension on the cytochrome oxidase 2 in males that's not in females. It suggests that this may be helping maintain this. They d as far as we know, they do not have sex chromosomes. So a lot of the basic biology that I learned back the last ice age is out the door. Uh, collaborating with two universities in Canada, Kent State and the museum, first blush look at phylogeny and the origin of this male mitotype. Um, we only have the female for Lampsus ornata, but you notice the same pattern showing up for, for the male, the female, the blue muscle, male and female come out together, they are the same species. And the other, a, of an arid marine clam. And there's suggestions that this DUI, the double, in, double inheritance, male, female, mitotype, is maybe the ancestral condition and suggesting that the whole lineage for fresh, freshwater bivalves unionoids is very ancient. What else is going on? Uh, through the state of Alabama, we've gotten a grant to look at a type catalog for pleurocerid snails. We have a variety here in North Carolina. Um, they're all, all of, so far, everything has been based on shell morphology. There's suggestions of clinal variation in at least one of the, one of the genera that is smooth in the headwaters, becomes spiny, in large and inflated as further down the Tennessee you go. There are about a thousand names. We're doing it in collaboration with um, Ellen Strong at the Smithsonian. And um, I think we've photographed three, three different positions for most all the material at the Smithsonian, about 600 taxa. And we're starting to pull together the, the remaining laying the groundwork for a re-examination of what's going on in North American uh, snails. This is just one family of, of freshwater. So that's freshwater bivalves, what we're doing, what I think I'm trying to do, and how it relates to the museum. And Trish, I did not forget, I have a long hanging project with Trish to describe a new species of freshwater bivalve of the late Triassic clays here in uh, ancient Rift Lake here in North Carolina. It will soon be done. What? <laughs> okay, any questions, comments, objections? You can wake up now. Yes, sir. There's, there, are, there are a lot, of, a lot of questions along that line. They're not in South Africa. They're not in India. The hyreids are not in India either. It appears that the, all of the freshwater bivalves in, in India may in fact have their closest relationship to animals living in the rift lakes in East Africa. Uh, one, of the, one of the comments we got back on a uh, grant proposal was, well, just use the stuff in the museums probably less than 50% of that 180 genera 
are represented in museums by preserved material. And of that preserved material, maybe 10% of it is available for DNA work. So we have a long ways to go. Um, working with the paleontologist at the University of North Dakota and one of his graduate students to try to, to get at this. How do you integ integrate the fossil record into the uh, modern phylogeny that we have? Are all those genera that go back to the end of the Cretaceous, are they all the same? What's the time depth for genera? One of our greatest problems is that after the Upper Triassic in Eastern North America, we have almost nothing for a fossil record for freshwater bivalves. There are about two species from Maryland in the late Cretaceous. There are two or three species from the Miocene in, in uh, Louisiana, a couple of odd specimens of, from the Pliocene of Florida, and then West Virginia, earliest Pleistocene, Florida again, earliest Pleistocene, and then everything else is 40,000 years or less. We don't know. We have ideas, <laughs> we have suggestions, but there isn't enough data at the present time to answer, answer those questions. For very, very long ago, it was. So, so is, we. Is that most likely just introduced? The, the material has been collected since about 19, between 1900 and 1920. And uh, the, the theory from Madagascar looks just like anything else. And there are four species, arguably four species of, of Unionids collected from northwest Madagascar. And they've never, no one that I'm aware of has, has collected them since. Uh, are they introduced? Is it a recent introduction? These things do not cross saltwater barriers. So the same question comes up with, we have two species of freshwater bivalves in Cuba. None of the other islands have native freshwater bivalves on them. How'd they get there? <laughs> How long have they been there? So no, we have we have more questions than we have answers for most of these. Um, Yes. Yes. <laughs> we had, uh, <clears throat> it, it happens, we have the, the Lilliput, which is a real small uh, series of species. We have one species from about North Carolina south to central Georgia. And last January, somebody brought in some from Falls Lake. We got a biologist from DOT and then some people from the Wildlife Commission. And they're going, we got a new population of, of uh, the Atlantic Lilliput. But it's not. Based on shell shape and everything, it appears to be an introduction. The same species we just got yesterday, examples from a, a reservoir in well, Lake Marion in South Carolina. I was sent material from a lake in New Jersey. Jeanette goes, hey, this key you wrote just doesn't work. So well, the reason it doesn't work, the specimen you, that you were trying to key out did not occur in, North, in New Jersey historically. We see it uh, throughout um, Alabama. You introduce certain bait fish. You, they may have glochidia on the gills. They're introduced, glochidia do well you suddenly have another population. A lot of those more invasive species may use a variety of hosts. The uh, paper pond shell, everything that they've tried as a potential host has been a host. If you're in water too long, you may be a host. <laughs> Anything with gills, 
We have one species in North America that uses salamander, the, the mud puppy, external gills for, uh, as they do the, the fish gills. And it appears to be the only host for that. Well, we haven't looked at the water dog, the Noose River water dog and everything over here to see if anybody's using those animals. But the, the paper pond shell uses clawed frogs and all sorts of aquarium fish and a whole suite of, of native fish. So the ones that are living in, in more disturbed habitats apparently are much more flexible as far as host fish than animals that are living in a fairly narrow niche out in cobble, gravel runs. But on the other hand, the way we're disturbing the environment, modifying the environment, there are some of these species, the three-horned wartyback, the, 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 uh, the Anodonis subarbiculata, the big round, the, the flat floater, um, are expanding their range. As the host fish, one of the sunfish, moves into a new area, it colonizes. When the water quality in the Ohio has gotten better, a dozen species have recolonized the Ohio, which was dead by 1900. And one of those species has never been reported for Western Pennsylvania, the flat floater. It came in, was living in a, in a uh, headwaters of a reservoir, navigation pool. So yeah, moving fish around is a problem. Uh, modification of habitats is a problem. And uh, people go, well, as they're introduced here and there, that improves our fauna, so therefore we don't have to worry about those going extinct. Well, that's, that's one way to look at the world. For fresh for freshwater bivalves <coughs> living in, in water, and you have to have some mechanism to either maintain your position in the river or to move up and expand. Otherwise, within about two generations, you're going to be back in the salt marsh again. Um, once you get out of North America and Western Europe, the information we have on host fish and these sorts of things just plummets. That we can we can in most cases we can put a name on on what that animal is. As far as host fish, its relationships, no. One, one of the interesting things that Tom Waters has done was looked at diversity of freshwater mussels in relation to diversity of freshwater fish. And they seem to mirror the higher the diversity of fish, potentially the higher the diversity. Going back to your question, you look at diversity of freshwater bivalves the Tennessee, the Cumberland, and down into, and then the Mobile Basin. Highest diversity anywhere in, in the world. The Mekong River in Southeast Asia comes in about third, depending on who's counting. Um, why? The interior, interior plains were uh, grasslands, and then they were originally cut off from the east by the uh, Lake Cretaceous Intermontane Seas. Uh, so what is the relationship of that fauna across? Why do we have 70, 80 species in a riffle in Tennessee and um, all, of Northern, all of Europe has about a dozen species? So there, there's tremendous amount of, of questions, uh, biogeography, physiology, reproductive biology, uh, the questions out there are just endless. So looking for a graduate project, we've got <laughs> plenty of them. Other questions? All right, with that, well, we thank Art. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> as always, I ask that you please help stack the chairs, make sure you've got somewhere you can store the pies in the pile and put them back over there. Again, anyone who is not from the museum who would like to find out more about upcoming lectures, there's a sign-up sheet up front. Thank you. <coughs> hey. Horse? Um, <laughs> horse, yeah. You know, we've, uh, one of the exhibits we're doing for NRC is that diversity of life, wildlife, mm -hmm. diversity of life. And we've, right now we've got missiles in two locations. 
Okay. And in one location, we're talking about how do you tell a species. Right. And then in another location, um, we're talking about um, what do we do with the knowledge and why should we care? Yeah. And that's where we're talking about having live mussels and that, you know, okay. video, hopefully videos of like fish and mussels together. Yeah. But um, I was just wondering if I could give, I'm not sure where we're at. Right now we're looking at different sections of the outline. Maybe I can, can I give you a call and talk about sure. photos and artifacts and things yep. that might be available, tell stories and sort of <coughs> there, there are lots of good photographs and there are some videos out at um, <coughs> Southwest Missouri State University. I've got uh, that UNIO website. Yeah, that one is real good. Well, and there are um, several other videos that are that are also available right. out there. Uh, for the for the um, for the how do you tell a species section, uh -huh. it's a really complicated story. So well, if you're not on the Atlantic Slope, it, it's not that bad. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. So, well, I'll, I just wanted okay. to yeah, be happy check to. in with you at some point about all that. So, Thanks a lot. Just give me a call. Good. Yes, ma'am. What were the three steps of extinction? Pardon? What were the three steps of extinction? <coughs> Ex extirpation. And then we had functionally extinct, which applies to freshwater mussels when they lose their host fish. It's, it hap typically happens in big rivers with reservoirs. Um, and then final extinction. Thank you. I think you mentioned lifespan in the beginning, 10 to 100 years. 200. The pearl mussel in Western Europe has been aged at probably 200 years, if not more. That's astounding. How do they age it? Growth rings. That's another contentious part. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, anywhere from about 10 years up to around here 40 years, some of them in the Ohio Basin 60, 80 years, but the, uh, the, uh, but the, uh, the pearl mussel, we have the same species up in northeast from the Delaware, well from the Schuylkill and the Delaware Basin clear up to Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia is the one that occurs from Spain all the way up to uh, Murmansk, the Kola Peninsula in, in western Russia. So, it, through, and it, it gets tremendously abundant where, where it occurs. That's an amazing fact. How can you? It's out of print right now. We uh, are revising it. But there are two PDFs on my part of the museum webpage. You go out to bring up the museum webpage. You go to research, and then invertebrates, and then click on Art Bogan. And then there, I think one of the first things is freshwater mussels in North Carolina. But I'm improving the quality of the photographs in there, updating the text, and uh, updating and revising the key. So. But it's a, that's a good place to start. So, good. I think so. I don't okay. know. Oh, Jamie's still here, so yeah. <laughs> okay, enjoyed it, Art. Thank you. Thank you. That's what we think we're doing.
unplugged everything. Okay. 